mindfulness. And we haven't even opened the door to it. In fact, we haven't even put our hand on the, on the door latch. <laughs> We're still standing at the door, kind of letting the appearance of what this sutta means and preparing ourselves to enter. And I think the most important aspect of this sutta is the preparation for it. Uh, I think we are a very um, engaged and active and productive culture. And we like nothing more than to get in there and let the start atten attending to the exercises and focusing on the productivity and application so we could start checking off the various forms and expressions that this sutta encourages. And uh, we could check off, I don't know, there are something like uh, 16 or so exercises in this sutta. Um, <clears throat> and we can't wait to get to the graveyards and look at the de decomposing corpses. <laughs> and uh, on and on. Uh, and I think that it's probably better to pause here, to pause, and to really uh, ask whether that's the right way to enter uh, our, uh, and expose ourselves to this application of mindfulness. Because it's the application is just, is just the sawing of the wood, it's the doing of the practice, but it doesn't carry uh, the guidance system for the practice. It's like a rudderless boat, just a, or drift without the guidance system. And even to understand how, uh, how um, compulse, compelled we are towards the activity of something, rather than engaging it with uh, some uh, understanding and uh, some wisdom. I see this in myself a lot where uh, I'll be, I'll set up a whole checklist of activities for myself on Saturday because I couldn't get to them any other day. And then my whole day is filled with this checklist. And if there's a gap in there, I fill it with some other form of activity. And I was seeing that this weekend, I thought, wait a second here, what am I teaching? What am I doing here? Why is, it, why is, why is the sense of me so compelled into my doing, into my activity, into getting the application done, into checking off the list? What, what is that about? And is it uh, obscuring something that's vitally important. And at that moment, wisdom won out. And I just said, you know, I'm, what is it like not to do here? What is it like to put a pause here and to deliberately relinquish any form of activity and therefore self-usefulness? That's the important point. You see, as we start moving into this sutta, we have to know what we're in line with. And if we're trying to build upon our sense of self and, and to make our, our practice meaningful in disciplined terms or in constructive or in exercising or in productive terms, we're going to miss the boat. If we're not willing to stop in the course of our day and really ponder what a direct 
abiding attention to life is like rather than an activity that interfaces between life that keeps myself very informed within my activity and very future oriented about where that activity is going to lead but never settling down to actually allow life to rub, to be exposed to in the raw forms of life. Just what's life, what's life in this moment? And to only, the only way we can ever get to that, what is life in, in this moment, is by releasing the need to do. And you get this, this sense that uh, we keep ourselves in the shell in a kind of um, chatter of activity. One of the lessons I learned in teaching new people was the hardest homework I would ever give anyone was to tell them to only do one thing at a time. Where they were brushing their teeth and doing nothing else. And inevitably they would come back after I had given that homework and say, I can't do this. It's a, I just can't do that. Have me do this or follow my breath or do walking meditation. I can do that, but don't have me do I can't do this. So we're up against an immense challenge, an inward a compulsion to keep ourselves going and to keep ourselves informed of ourselves. And the way we keep ourselves informed of our own image, within our own image, and to keep ourselves building upon that image is through the constructions we make in life. And now we're faced with a construction of enormous proportion, which is the exercises for the doing of our freedom. <laughs> we had better know how we're orienting ourselves to this sutta, or we will become self-compelled and therefore self-fulfilled, but not we will not align ourselves in the proper orientation of what the Sutta is supposed to do, which is to show us the selflessness, is to uncover the very emptiness of self. So this is, um, to, to start this Sutta any other way I think would be a mistake. <clears throat> and we have to also understand where this Sutta is taking us. That there is the egoic consciousness and that's the consciousness that contains the image and the constant uh, narrative and commentary of myself as I march through life, which holds a, a kind of, of a calcified uh, a position, a separate and very isolated position from everything else as I'm telling myself, talking to myself about what I see and about what I do. It gives me a very strong sense of distance and isolation within life. That's where we begin, the egoic state of consciousness, the, the consciousness that feels very isolated from all other things. That's the beginning point. To the awakened state, which is the complete abiding in life, without any screen or partition or obscuration between ourselves and life. Now all of Dharma practice and all of any spiritual tradition that is uh, genuine moves us from that egoic state to 
the natural awakened state. That's what it's supposed to do. But if we think that the awakened state is something that we can build or cultivate from our own sense of doing, we have misunderstood or misrepresented what is naturally, we naturally abide in at all times. And I think the important point when we align ourselves with a sutta of doing, of application, is to understand the principles before we start doing. And that principle very strongly states, and Zen is called the Buddha nature within us, that that awakened state is not something that we have to manufacture or cultivate, that is intrinsic to each and every person. And what we have done to the awakened state is obscured it with our thinking, with our constant reflective, of, uh, our constant reflective narrative about everything that we do. And that reflective narrative just skews, just distorts ourselves sufficiently so that we can't perceive the awakened state. What we perceive is ourselves acting within life rather than life acting within us. And so all of this has been, it's, it's a um, misperception, a misperception. So when we start going into the sutta with our guns blazing, let us understand what we're trying to do. We're trying to release the tensions of life that are already on top of us, that we're already creating that distortion. We're not trying to achieve something other than to release the obscuration that keeps us from that natural state in and of itself. So that's a very important understanding to have before we get involved with the sutta as well. So the pause is important, and that pause, I would like to suggest, can be applied throughout the day. Just call yourself back, just here, here. And don't do it as a command, do it as an adventure. Do it to see what value life is holding in the non-doing of that moment, as opposed to what life is, is uh, offering in the cultivation and the productivity of our normal and active life. There's a certain thing we get out of our activity and there's another thing that we get out of our presence, of our awareness. And we have to like one better than the other to ever change the disposition or move from one to the other. So two things are going on simultaneously. One is that we are learning the value of the awakened state on its own terms, not for what it can do to me, but how it what the feeling of being interconnected is, the delight of wonder of being interconnected. That's the first thing. And the second thing we are doing as we are moving into these exercises is learning the limitation of the way that we have normally lived within the trance of our own thought and how that sense of isolation has provided a strong sense of egoic dominance but has not allowed me to feel connected or to feel heart drawn or intimate with life at all. And so we learn our way out of one towards the other. And it's a very slow journey out of one into the other, it seems to be, and what you think would be very quickly, as we 
felt the benefits of a life of awakening and we saw the limitations of the life of thinking, you would think that we would be drawn very quickly out of one, but it's not. It's much more, I don't know, it's, 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 it's much more like giving birth to ourselves. And uh, so that for most people, it's a journey of some duration. But it need not be that way. One of the reasons that it isn't is that we're not willing to give up on ourselves so quickly. We still think that we just haven't milked it in the right way. We haven't, we haven't forced the right environmental situations together for us to have the prominence that we think we deserve and can benefit from. And so we're constantly trying to work life on our behalf so that we can feel egoically what we really want to feel, which is the predominance, which is the dominion of what it would be to be on top of life and be the monarch of life. And we do that all day long. We constantly do that through our activity. We're looking for a better me, a more refined me. Now we can get into this sutta in exactly that same way. We can get into that sutta looking for a way to improve upon ourselves, to make this sense of self more embellished, to have a stronger sense of self-identity around the proficiency of our exercises. So we have to be very careful here. This is, this is slippery slope. It's a very slippery slope. But I, I'm, I'm not just talking about these exercises, I'm talking about a way to live. I hope everybody realizes that. If you teach yoga, and I know some of you are yoga teachers, how do you teach yoga? Do you teach it as a gymnastic experience? You teach it as a, a muscle building, health providing, and, or do you teach it as a, as a union, as an interconnectedness? As a way to move into our bodies and connecting with our bodies in different motions and thereby connect to the earth itself beyond the body. So it can be done either way. You see, in a simple method like yoga, you can make it into a, a cultural, self-based, biased system, or you can make it into a spiritual system. And it's up to the teacher. It's not up to the student. They'll just follow you no matter what you do. They think you know. So how do we teach it, you see? What we would really like to hear is that we want to self-improve ourselves to enlightened state. We'd love that because that would give us all the power in the world to remain who we are and then proclaim our enlightenment on some kind of certification. It just doesn't work that way though. And if you want to try to work it that way, you're welcome to do that. And then I'm here to pick up the pieces <laughs> when you fall apart on it because that's what's going to happen. So if there's a humility, there's a humility all along the way here that has to be kind of a given in this. And a, and a, a kind of wonderment and not a, a, a sophistication, a dharma sophistication, like you know what's going on. I know all about yoga. I know the pentageny, you know, and all the breath and all that. I don't know a thing about this. I keep reading it and I go, what in the hell does he mean by that? I really don't know. Nobody does, though. 
How can anybody know? He lived 2,500 years ago. He didn't tell anybody. He just said it, and then everybody puts their interpretation on it. So you get my interpretation, right? It's a good one, though. <laughs> so most of us have found our foundation. When we're looking at the foundations of mindfulness, that's fine. But most of us have found our foundation already. The foundation is the truth of me. That's our foundation. That's what we have asserted opinion, through our opinions and our judgments and our everyday life. I mean, just look. How... How, do you ever escape yourself? Do all experiences come into you? It's just being reinforced moment after moment by virtually every expression of life. It's coming into you. It's like everything is, meets at your vor, uh, vertex. And everything has something to say about you. Everything, you know, it's, it's a totally identified and egocentric life that most of us live, isn't it? We're at the center of all the circles of life. Everything ho hubs around us. Like the old world systems, you know. Everything went around the world, went around the earth. All the orbits of the planets went around. Well, it's all going around us. So that's our foundation. That's where we're starting with this thing. And first we have to admit that that's what the situation is, is that we don't seem to be able to get out of ourselves. And we feel that we should be able to get out of ourselves, so we work it very diligently to try to get out of ourselves, but the trying to get out of ourselves takes us back into ourselves, and we are left feeling remiss in the work we've done because it all comes back into us in sharper focus as we try to get out of ourselves. So the, trying the, the very attempt to relieve the pain of ourselves creates more personal pain. See, this is very tricky. Very tricky. We better know what we're doing. First thing is to take an assessment of the landscape of what this situation is like from this perspective, not try to get out of the perspective. Let's just see if this perspective, what, what's the, what is it like to live within this perspective? You know, that everything is coming in in this kind of narrowed, focused way to a sense of I. And what we have taken to be the truth of I, that foundation, is the assumed posture we take. We don't ever question that assumption. We just assume that to be a fact. I am here. The world is out there. Now let's get on with it. So all of these exercises... All the Sadi Patana Sutta is supposed to do is to undermine that placement, that entrenched assumption of me, that firm foundation of self. It's to call that into question, not to build more muscles of self, not to solidify it, not to, to reinforce it, but to call it into question. And to do that, we have to go very tenderly into this thing. We're not, anytime we try to get over ourselves, that's the self trying to do its, is trying to eliminate itself from, you can't, the self loves to try to be its own executioner. You see, that, that keeps us very, that, that's a heart because, you know, now you're, but you can't do it. 
So what's, what is there, what can we call in? See, this is where the Buddha, this is his true gift. You see, what do you call in when you can't call your own force of effort? When you can't call your own volitional effort, your own will towards your under self-understanding, to undermine yourself, to see what's under you. What, what do you call in? What, what resources do we have? And some, some uh, traditions say, oh, you know, the truth is, there's no way to get to it, and they just put a full stop. Well, the Buddha, he gave us something. Perhaps the first time in history, he offered an application to, towards the understanding of self. And he did this through mindfulness. Mindfulness is a, is a very tricky, very, very tricky uh, procedure or uh, practice. We take this thing called attention, which seems to be coming from me, because all things seem to be coming from me, don't they? Like my voice and everything. So when we start our mindfulness, it seems to be mine. We claim ownership to it. And we start applying it everything to everything. And now you have mindfulness for cognitive therapies, and you know you have it for if you have depression, apply mindfulness. If you are obsessive compulsive, there's a mindfulness therapy. Mindfulness-based cognitions are everywhere. Therapists are using it now. You know, it's some it's like, but they're doing it from a sense of 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 self. They're doing it from themselves, from their own empowerment. And so there's something missing in the application of mindfulness that has you as its maker, as its producer, as, its, as the person who's doing it. And this is where 99% of all mindfulness falls. And it's the hardest lesson to learn in any spiritual practice. The hardest. You have to question the very personhood itself who is using mindfulness. And mindfulness is just knowing what's occurring. It's just a simple attention, contact with something. It says, and we think that if we just bring contact to something, that somehow will end the problem. No, but all it does is it shines a light around. If I had a flashlight and shined a light around, would that end your problem? It just shines a light around. It doesn't shine a light, it shines a light on this or that. You can shine it on the body if you want to. But if you hold the assumption of what that body is, never letting the light be able to see, see what anything new that it's shining upon, so that you hold the assumption wherever the light shines, you have the opinion of where, where it's lighted, lighting upon, then the mindfulness is being what its point, which is to show us something new, something innocent, something bare and bare attention. Just what it is. Well, if we hold the assumption of what it is as we're carrying the light, the mindfulness is negated. You see? Because we already have a complete opinion about everything already. And so we have this light, and it says, oh yeah, you're you, you're me, and I've got this, and my anger, and uh, 
We hold a whole attitude that we carry the light with and the attitude is never questioned. It's the assumption of self never questioned. It's the light and where it's shining. And it does show us some things and it clears up a lot. Just shining a light around shows you dirt that's in the corners and stuff like that. But it doesn't show us the basic mistake we're making, which is the person who's carrying the light. Now, do you want to go this way? You see? Or you're already waiting for the bell so you can get out of here. <laughs> because this is not easy. But if you want to go into truly a spiritual direction, you've got to ask questions about the basic assumptions on which you're already standing, which doesn't allow a peaceful and tranquil time. It's a very disconcerting time when you start pointing that light back on yourself and asking questions about yourself. That creates a lot of anxiety. We'd rather stand firmly as a person shining the light outward and deny that there's anything wrong here and look outside for the questions that we need to pose. But it's exactly the opposite of that is where we have to go. That's why this thing is for just the very few. Very few people really want that. They're afraid of what the light will expose, as if that wasn't already occurring, as if they were going to awaken some monster inside of them that wasn't already activated. We're just afraid to see the monster that's already there. But how are we going to work with this thing if we're afraid of the monster? If we want to keep denying the attention then we'll stay unconscious. And staying unconscious is the problem. We have to want to see our, the monster in us. We want to, have to, we want to want, we need to want to see the rage, the passion, the lust. The annoyance, the morality, the judgment. We have, to, we have to take this light and sober up. First, we have to be very sober. See, that's what we're doing. We're sobering up before we're opening this door of the Satipatthana Sutta. So it's a sobering time. Now we're taking this light, taking a deep sigh, and shining it backward. Because that's where this light goes. That's where all of these exercises ultimately reveal shine a light on the very perceiver, him or herself. <clears throat> so what is the true foundation? You see, I love that question. If the sense of self is a fabricated foundation, what's the true foundation? This thing says there are four foundations. First of all, those foundations aren't meant to be they're simply places where we can rest our attention. We can abide our attention for exploration. And we'll go through each of those four foundations in the months ahead. But the question I'm asking is, if the sense of self isn't the real foundation of reality, what's un what, is, what is the real foundation of reality? I, I hope that 
question uh, stimulates something in you, invites a kind of curiosity and interest, not terror, but interest. Like, what, what is under all of this? And as we begin to get quieter, because whenever you ask a serious question, you're gonna, we're going to get quiet, aren't we? We're going to get curious, and our curiosity isn't going to lead to an elaborate response, because we don't know. We don't know what lies under that. And when you genuinely don't know, and you're willing to discover something new, you get very quiet. Now that's the, that's the right way to enter these, this sutta. Not through, oh, I'm going to use mindfulness to, you know, really check the... It's, it's to get quiet. Like, I don't know what this thing is. What is the body? I, I don't know. Been looking at it for 40 years. Been living with it for 63 years. I don't know what it is. Can't be known, really. But it's never a dull moment. Now, let us look at this thing for a moment. Uh, let's look at some of the exercises that are being invited, the invitation of the exercises uh, that are lined up here in this sutta. And there are many exercises. Uh, there are active exercises where there's an active exploration or an activity involved in the exploration of the body. There's one called 32 parts of the body where you're moving your attention through the bones and the tissues and the pus and the really sinews and the, all of that. And uh, through 32 parts of the body and making each one of those consciousness. So there are very active, engaged exercises, and there are very passive exercises where essentially you're resting in attention and just being completely choiceless and open in that attention. Then there are exercises that are meant to steady the attention. Now we love that one because the sense of self can bite down, can get some grip on that one, because it's scientific. It's like if I do more of this, this my attention increases. So the graph of time over number of breaths I can follow is a line that goes in a positive direction. The more time I spend following my breath, the more breaths I can follow. I like that one, because that puts me in charge, doesn't it? You see? So some of these things are going to bring us out, bring, us, bring the sense of self out in terms of its accomplishment, and you'll see yourself getting stuck on those ones that you can self-embellish. And you'll find that you'll deny the other ones in which you're undermining that sense of self and you'll find yourself moving towards, quite naturally, towards the one that can embellish you so that you can be proud of it, so you can show people how many... See? See how, see how I can do... I'm being silly, but inside, it's really the logic that sustains us in most of our practice. So there are exercises that bring that sense of self out because they are scientifically based and cultivated qualities of mind that can be nurtured. And there are, even one of the exercises says, uh, follow your breath and uh, build in a sense of calm with each breath. So we're actually deliberately cultivating a sense of calm. And you go, 
Now, why is the Buddha doing that? Why is the Buddha asking us to cultivate some Isn't that, I'm a, knowing that I could get completely lost in this sense of calm and just keep cultivating it towards forever. And we have seen people, I know people who have gotten lost in their meditation and their appreciation of calm. But what is it that the Buddha is talking about? Because he, when he founded this path, he also founded, he found a number of states of mind which were very helpful in coming to freedom. So what is that about? See, let's clear that up now before we enter this sutta so that we can get a sense of what's, what's at that door when we open it. Well, if you look around and if you just notice that when you're calm, life becomes translucent. You can see it. When you're noisy, you can't see anything but the noise level of your mind, can't you? So it's better to sit in an environment that doesn't have a lot of distractions, right? And it's also better to cultivate certain qualities of mind that allow us to be undistracted. So it's not meant, these states are not meant for goals, to be goals in and of themselves. They are meant to create an environment to be able to see. And it's the seeing that's important. And quiet, calm, tranquility, equanimity, patience, those are all settling states of mind that allow life to be toned down to in decibel level. So now you can perceive it. It's hard to do it in the middle of a party or when you're drunk, or when other states are superimposed upon that quiet. So, th that's, so if we get a sense that these are for, to aid our seeing, to aid our insight. They're not meant to be cultivated as, as I mentioned uh, last week, as a, um, I don't know, as, you know, as a search and find mission, like we were, on some scavenger hunt. So when we understand, okay, so then there are some states, okay, so that's going to be in there. Just to understand how we're going to work with that when it does come up, am I going to find, so when I start, say, okay, a breathing in, calm, breathing out, calm. I go, oh, this calm feels so good. Oh, wow, this is really nice. And I can just sustain it and I can just nurture this calm and it feels so good. This is really what I wanted out of life was this beautiful sense of calm. Now, why do I ever want to go anywhere else but that? Well, the fact is you can't sustain it. So if it's in it is not sustainable, you're going to have to come out of it. And what's life looks like when you're on the other side of it, outside the calm? Does it look like, oh, I, all I want my life to be is calm? Well, then you're going, that's a definition of suffering. So if we move the definition of suffering into this sutta, you'll very quickly see when you are trying to cultivate states for, from your attached, from the attached point of view, rather than just letting those states be and letting them nourish themselves, which they will. They don't need your encouragement to nourish them. Okay, so that's an important point to make. I'm, see, I'm just preparing us. It's like we're going out on this adventure 
Does everybody have a pack? Do you have a, do you have a tent? Do you have a sleeping bag? Do you bring food? So I'm just looking, I want you to look at your pack and know what you got in there because these things are very important as we move out as a, as a group into this adventure called the Satipatthana Sutta. And one of the, some of them are, uh, they firm a connection with body and mind. They says when you're standing, just know you're standing. When you're sleeping, know you're sleeping. When you're sitting, know you're sitting. And so all day long, the yogi, the, the person, uh, the practitioner, knows, has a connection, just that bare sense of connecting with something. Right? Just that, just, it's like this, just warm touch to the cheek. It's just, oh, just knowing that, okay, so I'm here. Just, just gentle. It's a gentle touching. It's a caress, really. It's a caressing. And it's the first, it, it's the first phase of the ice sheet of self melting, is in that caress of, that caress of awareness. And what we do, the sense of self, makes it into a, you know, I'm not doing this well enough. Gosh, you know, last yesterday I was so much, and I don't, need, I don't even know I'm sitting now. And they make it into a comparison and a judgment and into a line of self-defeat. That's, so know that, that's not the way to go. Okay? Some, some of these exercises move us from a sense of personal attraction to a particular sense of revulsion, like uh, going to the charnel grounds and looking at dead bodies. What it's supposed to do is balance the normal overextension we give the body and the beautification we offer the body to balance it and see what it really is rather than what we try to beautify it to be. So there's this offsetting the balance of energies in some of these exercises that we need to be aware of as well. So some of them have different ways of trying to bring us back into balance so where we're overextended. <clears throat> Some of them show us how we have created our worldview. One of them, one of the foundations is in terms of the feeling tones, of the pleasant and unpleasant aspects of life. On which that, at one point the Buddha said, he realized that his whole life had been driven by these feeling tones. And he had never understood that. And that when we start looking at the reasons we build and elaborate upon emotions or activities or anything that we do, is often simply the, the precursor of all of that was just a simple feeling tone of pleasant or unpleasant that we tried to nurture, we tried to prolong, we tried to embellish, and then we set out on a whole self-adventure just based upon a simple feeling tone. So we can begin to see how we construct all of life from this very simple elements that are present in every experience. Now, I, I want to look at two very important components. I haven't left myself enough time to really <laughs> give them what I wanted to, but behind Every exercise, there are certain applications of selfless, selflessness that need to be there. And if you want to assure that the applications of selflessness 
are intoned within the exercise, then we have to bring two qualities into every meditation. One of those qualities is bare attention, which I mentioned earlier. Bare attention is not opinionation. It's observation without opinionation. And the reason this is important is that the sense of self is built upon his or her opinions. When you know everything, when you have an opinion about everything, then the person who's opinionating is very in a very secure and isolated position to the opinions that he or she is imposing. When we go in with bare attention, which is quiet attention, which in its purest, pristine state, attention is absolutely still. All it does, the only quality it holds, is that it reveals what it sees. But when something is revealed, what usually happens within the mind is that an opinion comes about when it sees something. And so the perception, the quiet perception of bare attention is immediately covered with an opinionation, with a, an aversion or an attraction, depending upon what that experience is. So we have to become very aware and to really, and that was the homework that I set out for you tonight. I hope each of you pick up that homework sheet. Whereas, you know, this sense of bare attention now really needs to be understood thoroughly. Because when we're not opinionating, then there is this real discovery that's taking place. Rather than the self knowing what it's seeing and having more opinions about what it's seeing, it's this state of innocence. Bare attention is the state of innocence. The state of in innocence is by definition selfless. So to encourage and to get aware of in a very refined way as to whether our attention is carrying some contaminated thoughts or whether it's absolutely pristine and innocent. And begin to notice that in your sittings and just throughout the day. So that's the first quality. The second quality is the state of is, is radically letting everything be. I don't know how to frame this thing, radical allowance, or radical acceptance, perhaps. But I like radically letting things be itself. Now this is not the, the sense of self, again, what the sense of self won't let anything be. It imposes its own ideas upon virtually everything and then tries to manipulate life according to not what it is, but according to what it wants it to be. And that's the source of all the anxiety and pain associated with our life, is that form of manipulation. So when we start working with these exercises, it's very important for us to just allow an absolute, this is an absolute, just allow everything to be exactly as it is. So let's just look at how, what meditation looks like when we let it be exactly as it is. We let our minds be exactly as they are. There is nothing outside of reality. We let all of reality be exactly as it is and nothing exists outside of reality. So regardless of how reality is manifesting in any particular moment, our job is to completely free that up to be itself. Ignorance, confusion, disorientation, stubbornness, impatience. I don't know if I've hit your button yet, <laughs> but bring your button forward because that's, can you let that one be? And this is radical. I can't say it 
in any more absolute terms. We simply are stopped dead with whatever is occurring. And that's true discovery. That is when life is revealing itself to you full impact, 100%. That's the, the eye that's absolutely open and just being fed. And this sense of presence then begins to grow in accordance with that eye's perception. That eye is the entire, and I don't mean I as an I, I mean E-Y-E, that observation, that awareness, starts moving beyond this centrally located sense of me, who is the mindful person, and starts opening up its doors to, in far-reaching dimensions. We start sensing that this sense of being seen exists outside of the mind, that the body itself is being held within this observation, in this awareness, in this presence. And what we do is, since we, we just release the boundary between that presence and the body, and we keep releasing the boundaries between presence and where we're located within presence, and pretty soon there is just presence. Just presence. This is how it works. This is how it works. You, you, we, you're, you, as, you will, as you go through these exercises, what it will reveal is that life is very differently than how I've determined it to be in the past. My body's very differently. There's no boundaries to my body. My mind is very different than what I thought it to be. This whole body, mind, everything is very different than what perceptions, everything changes. And with that, there's an all-embracing awareness that steps in to fill the void. It's not empty. It's only empty of me. It's not empty. There's something there. Just feel it. I don't have to, I can't point you there in words because the words take you from it. But if we just quiet down and let these exercises work to unlock the door of what is already naturally there within, all along the way, we have a greater and greater perception of something that's astoundingly obvious when we begin to notice it again and again. Oh, of course, of course, we'll say. And resting in that, of course, is really where the practice takes us. May it be for, for all of us. Can we just sit for a minute or two? I feel like I gave you a lot of stuff. So sit and let the stuff out, just, just to be quiet, just to be quiet. Do you, ask yourself if you want to go in this direction because maybe these, these meetings aren't what you want. Maybe, these, maybe this isn't the way you want your spirituality to go. Maybe you want it to be self-embellished. Maybe you want to be, I don't know. Or is there something in your heart that pulls you in this direction? 
That's not for me to answer. But you should feel drawn. It shouldn't feel like a should. It, there's no whip in this. Well, if I had it together, I'd, wa I'd want to do this, but I really don't. Then obeying the bottom line of that, just feeling the resonance or, or the lack of it. It's okay, so. Okay, or a few minutes for any questions or comments that any of you might have. Yes. Is this the only writing about mindfulness or has he written, well, it's, it's throughout the many, many suttas. He talks about sati everywhere. But there are two main suttas. There's the Maha Satipatthana Sutta, which is the long version. And then there's a shorter version, which is what we're going to be doing here. God knows how long it would take me to get through the long version. Uh, you can read both of those. Just put Satipatthana Sutta in your search engine and it'll take you to the Digha Nikaya, D-N, and then you can see the page after page elaboration of what this shorter sutra, which is in the Maji Manakaya, the MN section, MN10, I think it is. And, uh, and you can read that. So what this is, is these are a compilation, compilation of many things that he said throughout his many, many decades of teaching. And they're organized into one or two suttas. But that's not all he had to say about it. He had a lot to say about it throughout all of his different teachings. But here, but what he did in these is they gathered all the, the applications, the how-tos, what can I do in order to become more mindful? That question is asked, answered within these suttas. So that's the point of, and, and they're made to be, uh, they have a very, um, they're, they're, they're perceived as being, quite like the most important suttas, the Satipatthana Sutta is quite like the most important sutta uh, in the Buddhist tradition, perhaps outside the Dharma Chakra Sutra, which is the turning of the wheel, which is the Four Noble Truths. Those two probably hold the, the main brunt of his teaching. So we're going we're to go into it, but Again, we can't go into this with naivete. We need to really be, we need to understand the direction, have some kind of rudder for ourselves so that we, if we get in there, we can easily flounder. Because I floundered. I'm telling you, because I did it. Uh, and so I'm trying to save you the, the trouble that I went through. Other questions or comments? Yes, in the back there. Um, I find my Very what? Very sticky? Yes, uh-huh. When you say sticky, can you tell me what you mean um, by? I, I had a very challenging day with my two-year-old. Right. And so there was lots of stimulation. Right. And lots of emotional 
Right. 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 Well, exactly. Yes. <laughs> Should you just ask me about the whole teaching? <laughs> so I. No. It, uh, well, that I mean, look, you're in good company. All of us think it's hard. All of us think it's hard. We wouldn't be here. We wouldn't have. We wouldn't be doing it for as many years, or you know. So it's yeah, it's 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 tricky. It's more it's actually more tricky than hard because it is very sticky. We're we're used to operating in a certain way. In fact, what I've decided to do is that the next talk I give is going to be an overlay of the whole of the whole problem, so that we can understand how this stickiness evolved, how we keep it going, the whole area of stickiness that you're talking about. Okay. It's important, and because we don't understand how we have evolved as human beings. And just to give you a very quick overview of that talk, the evolutionary uh, adaptation of having abstract thoughts about something was what allowed us to survive as a species. It made us cunning so that we could navigate our way. We weren't fast, we weren't ferocious, we had to be something, so we were coming. But to be cunning, but to be cunning, we had to develop that ability to abstract our thought. So it was a survival of the species at some point. However, the survival of the species is now beginning to wear thin. It's beginning to have a kickback. And that abstraction has, is our, way of seeing life. We don't see it for what it is, we see it for the alternatives that it could be. Which is what sur the reason we survived as a naked primate on, the, on some plane in Africa. Because we could think, okay, I don't you know, that stick could be a spear and I'll use that stick for the spear whenever I see the lion coming. But we haven't stopped thinking in that way. We still, we don't see reality for what it, we see it. Now, as we have grown in sophistication, we have, we see reality for what it, what it could be, what we could make out of it, right? And so we don't even have contact with reality as it is. We have, con we only, we put 99% of our attention into what our thoughts are telling us about the way we contrive or manipulate reality other than the way it is. And that distance between those two is all the source of suffering and tension in our life. So your son is being the perfect son. Your son, however old he is, is the perfect child at that age and expressing his character perfectly in the only way that he possibly could. You as a mother see other alternatives that he could be. And that's where you get sticky. Now, I say that, and you laugh, but you, you need to sober up, because that's the, <laughs> because that's the, that's the truth. And until you feel the pain of your ideas about your son, you will not live with your son in any kind of intimate way. And the distance between that will be the sorrow that as you get older because you will have missed the chance of having been with him. 
And I have seen people die on their deathbed grieving their entire life for that reason. That they never showed up to it. That you can't have intimate connection with an abstraction, with what you should be. You can't have an intimate connection with this person when you're thinking that they should be different than the way they are. That keeps you from having an intimate connection with them. Do you see? You can only have an intimate connection with the reality that's manifesting, period, adding nothing to that reality. Now it can be a very intimate connection. As soon as you add one idea, then you are heaven and earth away from that person. So we start out laughing at this jingle kind of catchphrase of the Four Noble Truths, but then you get very, very serious about it because you see your life's at stake here. You don't have to see too many people die in that condition, that wretched condition of be begrudging their life before you feel the power of the time we have left on this earth. Yes. Absolutely. That's a, absolutely. So she was asking about accepting ourselves. You see, that's where it begins. If, until you realize that the inward perceptions, the inward ideas, the inward narrative that you're giving yourself is about the difficulty that you're having with the perceptions that you're seeing. And the difficulty you're having with the perception you're seeing is because those same perceptions lie within you and you can't stand yourself when you're seeing the impatience that's in you and now you're seeing the impatience that's in him. And you all hold that aversion response to yourself and that's why you're projecting it out onto the other person when you see that same, that same mind state in them. And so you realize that until you clean this room up so that you're completely settled with this thing, which is the second foundation, the third foundation of the Sadhipatthana Sutta, looking at the mind and coming up to, with bare attention and total, total allowance and letting be of the mind. And then once the mind is completely settled, undivided, then we can allow life to be undivided. You don't have to do it externally first, and then you have to do it internally first, because the external is always a projection from the internal. Okay, all. We will...